you got to have persistence and be resilient. It's not easy building a business. This is not, you know, the Hollywood version of a startup in Silicon Valley, you know, pool tables and beer in the fridge. This is hard, serious work. It can be very enjoyable. It can be incredibly rewarding and satisfying, but it's really hard. And so the, the people who I see who are who are successful, they just they have a passion, they're persistent, they're resilient, and you know, they, they're willing to take new information, adapt to it. But if you if you're not persistent and resilient, you won't make it. Because mm-hmm. this isn't gonna happen in two or three years. This is a five to ten year journey usually. And so you have to be ready for the tough times. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Robert Klein, who left Big Pharma to start Medavance in the late 1990s. He eventually sold that company for $260 million in 2011 to what is now Becton Dickinson. Bob's next venture, Virocyte, a spinoff from the University of Colorado, sold in 2016 for 16 million. And then shortly thereafter, he joined at startup Boulder Surgical in 2017, pivoted the company and exited in 2021 to Hologic for 160 million. Bob is now chairman of Thermotech. Here are a few of the key learnings that we talked about in this discussion. First, if you're setting out to solve a problem, make sure other people are experiencing the same issue and are looking for a similar solution. Talk to potential customers about about what they really want so you can be sure of product market fit early on. Two, don't start a company with one eye on the exit. Buyers don't magically appear the moment your device is approved for the market. Build a self-sustaining business and the investors will come. Third, fundraising can't be viewed as a nuisance. It's part of your business model. Raise money early and raise it constantly. Remember that loving your product is not enough to convince investors. You have to sell them on its commercial viability and projected financial returns. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I want to mention a few things. First, since you're listening to MedSider, you're probably aware of how expensive it is to run clinical trials. Anyone who spent time in the medtech space knows that you typically need to commit hundreds of thousands of dollars, oftentimes millions, towards clinical research. But it doesn't have to be that way, and here's why. Proofpilot is a new kind of hybrid clinical trial platform that enables you to run decentralized studies at costs that are 40 to 80% below traditional approaches. This is how they do it. First, you can easily design a trial in the Proofpilot Visual Protocol Designer using their extensive library of templates. Next, you can launch those trials to participants and virtual staff without any technical development. Skip the integration of disconnected providers because Proofpilot pulls it all together seamlessly. For example, you can recruit, consent, and retain participants, then schedule, remind, and collect data, often with minimal manual labor, manage site data in real time, query adverse events quickly, and review data and preliminary analysis within hours, all in one compliant platform. Get up and running quickly with an annual license fee and launch as many trials as you like with an unlimited number of participants. To get started, visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot. For the Medsider audience, with an annual contract, Proofpilot will provide IRB approval for your first study at no cost. Some exclusions apply, so visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot to learn more. 
Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven MedTech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from MedTech experts, think about a MedSider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a MedTech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, Premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful medtech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Bob, welcome to uh, Medsider. Appreciate you coming on the program. It's great to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, this should be a uh, a cool conversation, pun, pun intended, right? <laughs> with your experience with uh, uh, within kind of the, uh, the the cooling space. So we, I, I, I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more about uh, some of those some of those uh, stories from from your uh, your career. So with that said, I, I provided um, kind of a high level bio at the outset of this interview, um, but would love to hear it from you first, right? Kind of provide your your the elevator pitch for you know for for Bob. Bob Klein's, you know, career leading up to your time at uh, at, at at Boulder, um, you know, which which you recently exited to to uh, Logic as well as Havencrest. Okay, well, uh, so hopefully this will be a, a long elevator ride. I'll try to keep <laughs> it as brief as I can. But you know, I, I've got thirty years now in the healthcare, mostly the med device space, and uh, the first part of that career was spent in kind of traditional roles in big med tech companies. Um, I actually worked for uh, companies that were part of the Pfizer uh, medical products group. So that was when big pharma was was into med devices. And so I got a lot of good experience, you know, starting out, understanding the medical device business and and learning it from a lot of different angles, played a lot of different roles. But the last thing I did in in the big company was in the business development space. And so I had spent a lot of time in smaller startups looking for opportunities. And I just kind of fell in love with the smaller company startup environment and um, really got the bug to see if I could take some of the things I've learned and kind of translate it into that environment. So I started looking for opportunities. And after, you know, I think it was like 15 years working for big companies, um, found an area of space that I thought might be a good opportunity to found a company. So I did that. I left my cushy, you know, big company job and, and uh, pursued this idea. And it was in the field of what we call therapeutic temperature management. And it was really this, this nascent idea to start using core body temperature and actually inducing lower temperatures to reduce neurologic trauma after a noxic event. So whenever the brain went out without oxygen, could cooling the body and really the brain lower the damage that was caused by the absence of oxygen. But at that idea, at time, that it was just a preclinical idea had been done in rats and never done in humans, at least on a clinical sense. So I left uh, the big company uh, started pursuing this idea on my own, threw in some of my own money and was able to recruit a couple other people to join me who I'd worked with in the past. 
And, uh, you know, it just became a, a long journey, it took 12 years, uh, but kind of an incredible journey, labor of love, uh, developing first and foremost a therapy that's proven highly effective for sudden cardiac arrest patients and head trauma patients, now kind of standard of care in a lot of settings, and really developing the approach that was most commercially viable, most, most uh, clinically uh, viable. In other words, it could be actually administered uh, in these trauma situations at various times, day and night. So we really spent a lot of time fine-tuning the technology and the approach, and the company grew over time to be quite significant. You know, we had our own direct commercial operations in the U.S., we even expanded in, into Europe with direct operations, had distribution partners in other parts of the world. And, you know, as a lot of these companies go, we kind of became victims of our own success. Since we had raised venture capital and we ended up exiting uh, to CR Bard in 2011, a really good deal for everybody, uh, including CR Bard, which now is part of the tickets and it went on and uh, has been very successful with the technology. The company was Medavance, the technology was the Arctic Sun. From there, you know, I still had the bug, took a little time off looked at opportunities. Uh, for me, I'm located in Colorado, so most of the opportunities that came my way were usually on one of the coasts, and just wasn't in a situation where I really desired to leave, and so I ended up spinning some technology out from the University of Colorado that was in a little different field than I had worked in, but I had trained in, you know, as an academic in this field of virology, and I found some technology that was a a physical way, a flow cytometer that could measure virus particles, very small particles. Usually it has to be done through a biologic process that takes many days. And with our process, we could do it in a matter of minutes and hours. And that's really important, as people understand now, to the vaccine world and manufacturing vaccines, also in the gene therapy world, which was emerging. The virus is often a vector used to, to do the gene therapy. So this idea of being able to remove uh, a lengthy step from manufacturing a research process from days to hours was, uh, was really kind of timely. And so we built that business fairly quickly. I raised some capital. We went commercial. We had some good success. And almost before I knew it, a big biotech firm out of Germany called Sartorius came along and made us an offer we couldn't refuse. So that was a quick turnaround, maybe three and a half years. And during the time that I was uh, running that company, um, I knew some people who had started another med tech company in the Boulder area where I'm located. Um, I had worked with them previously at the, you know, the, the first company that was owned by Pfizer that I had worked for. I'd seen them do some incredible things. So um, they started this company to focus in pediatric surgery and to develop advanced instruments for these smaller patients. And without really knowing much about it, just in my faith in them, I invested in the company, but I wasn't active in it. And so as I came off the exit in 2016 for the second company, which uh, was a company called Wiretite, I got approached by a recruiter who described an opportunity to me in the Boulder area for a company that I quickly figured out was this company I invested in. At that time, it was called Just Right Sir. And long story short, uh, they had kind of hit a wall and were having problems. 
I liked the technical founders. Um, it was in the local area. The, the products that they were trying to develop were really uh, worthwhile. So I, I joined them four years ago, kind of came on board, and um, we had to do a lot to kind of turn the company around, but we, we eventually did, and we changed a lot of the original ideas. And then uh, kind of same thing with the second company. We weren't looking to exit and um, started to grow quite quickly, had developed some new products, and uh, whole logic came along. Hope they won't mind me saying they're kind of flush with cash because of COVID and their diagnostic division. Uh, but more importantly, our products were being uh, cited and desired by their uh, customers, their GYN surgeons. So we completed a transaction with them last November. Okay, and that's that. That was that was Boulder Boulder Surgical, which yeah, was which just we right. rebranded just right to Boulder Surgical because just right was really known for pediatric focus, which which was something that we leveraged, but expanded to include a lot bigger market opportunities mm-hmm. in the band of pediatrics. So we rebranded the company to Boulder, B-O-L-D-E-R, surgical. Got it, got it. In that, in that early 2000, I, we're going to jump into some of the, some of the kind of the, the classic mid-sider questions and try to get a feel for kind of lessons that you've learned and kind of key insights throughout your career. But just, just to understand, you when you when you joined Just Right, I guess at the time, which was Boulder, and then and then exited to Hologic, did you jump right into the the CEO role then in that kind of yes. early two thousand seventeen yeah. timeframe? Okay, yeah. okay, got it, got it. And you were an investor in the company already then. Yeah, I was a yeah. silent investor got in it. the sense that I was betting on the, the technology uh, founders who I really believed in, yeah, but really hadn't paid attention. Got it. Which is not what I would advise for others for their investments. <laughs> um, but yeah, I jumped right in. Got it. Got it. And then now, you know, with what's your what's your involvement like with with Thermotech? Is it pretty high level involvement? I know on on your your, it, uh, your um, not not really. I mean, so along the way, one of some of the contacts I made, some of the investors in my earlier companies ended up starting a private equity firm down in Dallas called Havencrest. Got it. And I joined them as an operating partner. Um, so I helped them with diligence into companies and things that that they're looking at. But I actually found the company Thermotech, which was in is in the th- you know the thermal space, yeah. medical device thermal space, and uh, brought the deal to them. And we were able to execute the deal and acquired that company. I think at the end of I get confused with the COVID <laughs> situation, but I think it was uh, the end of nineteen. And, uh, you know, joined as chairman. And my first job working with uh, the P firm was to find a, a CEO, which we eventually did. So uh, Randy Chapman's the CEO there and doing a great job. So I don't have a lot of involvement other than working with Randy. Yep. But that's sort of what the, the operating partner responsibilities are, with Havencrest and with Thermotech. Got it. Got it. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, well, Thanks for that that explanation. I, I, I think most people listening are going to get a sense for kind of your the arc of your career and the number of kind of startup companies and early stage companies that you've been involved with, and you know taking taking them kind of through the the full life cycle, right, to eventual eventual exit. Um, so let's start with a topic that um, is arguably one of the most, most challenging, right, for any any startup you know med tech company, which is raising capital. And so you know when you think about your time, whether it was at, at Medavance and the and the rounds that you raised then or at Virosite, or even at, at, at Boulder Surgical, which was a little, maybe a little bit different because that, that when you joined that company was, uh, was, was um, you know, sort of already kind of in, in full-scale commercialization. 
talk to us a little bit about just maybe the, the key lessons that you you learned, you know, along the way raising capital, maybe frame that within not necessarily specific to whether it's a seed or a series A or maybe a later stage round, but just kind of key things that you think other entrepreneurs should know when they're uh, when they're looking to, to raise capital, whether it's VC or from P, uh, private equity capital or even just, you know, super angels. Right. Angels. You know, I, I had to learn this along the way. You know, most people that start a company, they're excited about the idea. They want to develop the technology. They want to get it you know, to the point where it's actually used in use in the field. And so they're really excited about that. And you kind of have this vision for first timers, you know, what a great journey this is going to be. And, and uh, the funding is kind of just, you know, uh, a nuisance in the sense that you think of, well, we'll get the funding and we'll do all this. And what I learned, at least in the CEO role, is you're always fundraising. And it's a really, really important part of a successful startup. And it's really, really hard. And so it's, I don't want to say it's a full-time job, but it's certainly something you have to always be doing and thinking about and planning for. And it's it's the, you know, the engine that allows you to do all the things you want to do. And it takes just a lot of forethought and effort and pounding the street and talking to people. And most of it is a process of rejection. You know, it's just you've fallen in love with the idea and you believe it and you're passionate, but now you're trying to convince others and, and everybody has their different point of view and what they think is important in a startup or what makes for a successful startup. And ultimately, you know, you're asking people for money that want to get more money back. So you have to really think it through commercially. So I just think you have to spend more time on it than most. I think, uh, People in startups, at least in the early stages, want to spend or once they're even going, you know, they they want to do the, the business of the business uh, as opposed to thinking about next steps. And so I've, I've always kind of said to people, CEOs, you have to start early. You don't measure your success by how much you raise, but you have to be thinking about how much money you need and when you need it. And at least for me, and I've raised a lot of venture capital over the years, no matter what people tell you, it's always a nine to 12 month process. Mm-hmm. Everybody says they can move quickly. You have a couple of really early successful meetings, but then the diligence process starts, which is always you know pretty uh, time consuming. And they want to bring in others to raise the capital. And then you have to negotiate the term. So you can't wait until you need the money. I, I always say the best time to raise money is when you have money. So my advice is is really just you know really focus on this as critical uh, activity to the success of your company. Devote enough time to it, and uh, it's almost you're always constantly raising money. Even even when you close a round, you have to be thinking of the next round. So so don't just put the you know the money in the bank and think you're done. You have to already be planning for your next round. Yeah, those are, those are good thoughts. It reminds me of the conversation I had several months ago with um, Peter Rains, who's running uh, Neutromix, which is like a, a wearable, uh, kind of a, a wearable technology, um, kind of really interesting tech. But you know, he he had you know we kind of talked about this acronym of, of ABC, right? Always be always be closing, right? right. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I think I think you know, listening to you with all of your experience, you know kind of echoing the same sort of sentiment. And I am always amazed at like when I when I see a, you know a company raised whether a seed round and then they raise their A round like nine months later or, you know, going from round to round, it's like this nine to 12 increments. And it's like, wow. I mean, they literally probably just closed the one round and yeah. then we're off to the races, closing the, the the next round. You know what I mean? Cause to your point, 
it always takes longer than than you expect, you know, even yeah, if there's interested investors. It just always says, and the, the other thing I think that's hard again for people just starting out is, uh, you know, I mentioned this, but it's like you get so many more no's than you get. I'm interested, and that's really hard when you put your heart and soul into something, and you have people telling you it's never going to work or I don't like it. You know, most people, most venture people are are at least polite. I mean, they don't try to crush your soul, but but uh, it can feel that way when you believe something so strongly and. And others don't, but you know you can't let that stop you. It really only takes one. I, you know the key to, to fundraising through the venture community is to find one group that wants to be the lead and be most diligent. And once you have that, uh, then you can find others because you know they're, they're risk adverse and and they want to know that somebody else believes. But you can't get down because you know you called on fifteen groups and none of them were interested. You just have pull yourself up and pitch to the next one. And eventually, you know, I've been very lucky, but eventually you'll succeed. Um, yeah. But it's a hard process. And a lot of new entrepreneurs, they, they don't realize how hard it is. And so they, uh, I think they underestimate how much time they have to spend on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's those are such, such great points. And, um, you know, just an- anecdotally, I had a conversation literally just yesterday with, uh, um, with kind of a long, a long time friend. I used to work with him at, um, uh, at, at a previous company and, and just, just exited, you know, a, a few months ago, pretty, pretty sizable exit. It was just fun to see, to just kind of follow from afar and just to see that eventually kind of, kind of happen. Cause I think it was, a, it was a good win across the board for everyone involved. And he even mentioned, like, I was asking him a little bit about some of the early days, you know, raising, raising funds. And they actually raised like some, a lot of their early investors were, uh, were, were, were eventual customers of, of theirs. And he was oh, kind really? of, yeah, he was, he was kind of walking that through. And he's like, one of the things that I, I learned early on was just, when pitching, like he's like, I gotta, I have to bring the inner because he's an engineer, so he's a little bit more, a little bit more introverted, brilliant engineer, right. but like not as, you know, not as maybe sales oriented. And he was like, I just realized that I need to, I need to bring a level of inner energy, even though I, I've got, you know, I've gotten turned down the previous five right. calls. He's like, I need to keep bringing that energy. And it was, it kind of reminds me of what you just mentioned of like, you know, you're gonna get turned down, you're gonna get a lot of rejection, but you just gotta keep, keep going, keep, keep pitching, keep believing, and. You know, know that it's gonna it's gonna take it's gonna take a while, but yeah, know. I tell a lot of the I do you know I do some mentoring and help and advising companies. I you know I always tell the people pitching, which is usually CEO. Look, if they don't think you believe it, they're not gonna believe it, right? right? So you you know you don't want to tell tell them what they want to hear just because they want to hear it, and maybe it's not true. But you have to bring the energy, absolutely, mm-hmm. and it's hard to do. It's a sales job, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's hard to do when you're getting rejected. Yeah, but if you push through hard enough, and you really believe you've got something, in time you'll you'll find somebody who will want to take a chance and, and work with you. Yeah, that's good stuff. Let's let's actually transition kind of to the the, the opposite end of the end of the spectrum, which is exits, right? And I think this is going to be kind of a. I'm sure your advice is going to be pretty pretty uh, pretty solid, considering you spent time in the BD world, and then you know I've been quite successful in in exiting. You know all you know all I guess. We talked a little bit more about three of the companies, right? Medavance and uh, and the the virology company. Um, what was the name of it again? Virusite. Uh, Virusite, yeah. And then uh, and then Boulder Surgical. But mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit more about like what what that looks like. Um, you know, exiting a company. When you think about some of those some of those wins, you know, across across the board, are there certain things that that stand out that were kind of instrumental um, in in making that making those transactions happen? Yeah, there are, and I hear this a lot. Companies that you know, early stage companies or even further along I talk to, you know, they ask about exit and, and they get asked, 
by their investors and other people about exit. And I always tell everybody, you know, uh, don't build your company for an exit. I mean, and I've seen this over and over again. You know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Five years from now, you know, we'll get acquired. I, especially with technical founders, I see this. Once we, you know, build the product and prove it out clinically, you know, get the clinical data, one of the big guys will come by us. And I always tell them, well, that would be great if that will happen. And it's happened. But you can't build the company around that. You have to have a longer-term vision. You're going to build a company that's going to be self-sustaining, and successful. And that means you have to go through the full life cycle of the company, not just get it to, you know, product development and regulatory approval, but you got to prove out commercial viability. And, um, you know, more and more in the med tech world, that's true. The, the acquirers wait to see, you know, how the market is reacting to your product. So you got to think bigger than that. And you got to, and you can't focus on the exit because you can't plan the exit. So just build a great company, do the things that you believe build long-term value in a great company. And, and that's not easy sometimes because you end up making decisions that, you know, maybe in the short term, if you think you're going to exit early on, you don't want to invest that money. You don't want to raise that additional round. You want to give the highest return you think you can at that point. And then you neglect those investments that need to be viable later. So build a great company. Don't focus your team and your company on an exit. Focus them on what they're building and the difference that they're making for patients and customers. And if you do that, and you I always say, if you do the right things long enough, eventually the stars align and you get an opportunity for an exit. But you can't control the timing of that. And I've learned that, you know, I've lived it. There's so many factors related to an exit that you don't control, starting with, you know, just basic things. Like if the economy is bad, you know, strategics pull back. They don't want to, you know, uh, take risks. So they, you go through a period of time where there's just not a lot of M&A activity. You know, I've been in the situation where certain market segments like the internet become the hot market segment. Nobody wants to talk about med tech. They're all focused on, you know, the internet. So, you know, you have to, you can't do anything about that. You have to, you have to survive and you've got to live through that. And then of course we just went through the pandemic. So, you know, you, what are you going to do if they stop doing surgeries, right? So don't worry about the things you can't control. Build a good sound company and build it for the long haul. Eventually, you know, maybe sooner than later, you know, the stars, as I will say, will align and there'll be a good opportunity to get liquidity that benefits everybody. And then the last thing I'd say is early on, develop relationships with potential acquirers. Start talking to them. But don't talk to them about being acquired, right? Because that, that feels like, again, you're thinking short-term and even feels desperate. All you want to do is you want them to be familiar with what you're doing and to be watching what you're doing. So I have always kind of scheduled uh, regular updates to companies that I think potentially might be interested in acquiring us. And often those conversations, you know, will go several years, three, four years, give them a regular update. And then eventually one or two of those companies um, has seen enough that they, they want to engage, you know, with an idea of potentially acquiring. But you don't want to get to the point where you think you're, you know, you've created value and others will see it, but you don't know any of the players. You want to establish those relationships they get to know you, you get to know them, they see your credibility because you're telling them 
these are my milestones that are coming up. You hit your milestones, hopefully. And so it becomes an easier transition into potential acquisition. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.